coming up on the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. When I had an opportunity to really go into the operation theater and, you know, seeing the patient before and after, really made me go, wow, you know, such a huge difference, the things that can be done with the surgery. This is the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. All right. Hello. Welcome, everyone, to the Dr. Pranos podcast. Once again, it's an exciting episode that we are going to have. Uh, and this is the first episode, actually, we are going to be on YouTube as well. Our first video wow. recorded episode. Yeah. Previously, it has all been audio and we, are, we were only on uh, audio podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts. But uh, this time, we, also, we are also going to be on YouTube, right? Thanks to technology. Thanks to Zoom. Uh, we are able to, to, to do that. So uh, c- thank you for uh, staying with us. And um, once again, I'm Dr. Lim. I'm the host. And together with me is my co-host, Andrew Mestrin-Donis, all the way from America. But he's actually based in uh, Malaysia right now. Andrew, you want to say hi? Hello. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, on our podcast today, it's a very privilege for us to uh, have uh, our special guest. And uh, he is none other than uh, Dr. Ian. Uh, well, um, surgeons prefer to be called Mr. Right? Rather than doctor. Maybe you can tell us a bit of a backstory on that. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Dr. Ian is uh, it's, it's with uh, Hospital UKM, one of the university hospitals, and he is a uh, general surgeon. He's going to be a liver or hepatobiliary liver surgeon soon. And I think your special interest is also in liver transplant, right? Because it's something that's so rare in hopefully. Malaysia. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. So so thank you for joining us, uh, uh, Dr. Ian, and thank you for spending the time to join us on our show today. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's really exciting to be on a podcast with... Uh, another podcaster right so so dr ian you also have um, a podcast that's ongoing as well it's called the prescription podcast do you want to like just touch yep. a bit on the on that podcast right um yeah funny actually um i grew up more of an introvert i don't know why i started this podcast i guess uh, basically i think after years of being a doctor and you know you constantly have to uh, give information to people, whether it's uh, your friends, your relatives, uh, or of course, just your patients. I thought it would be beneficial and it wasn't very hard for us to start up this podcast. So we did this podcast with the intention of educating the general public about certain conditions. So for now, we've been doing a couple of diseases, started off with the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract, and now we've moved on to uh, gynecology, um, and also latest few was on skin. Yeah. So you actually have different uh, specialists coming onto your podcast to talk about the conditions or? Yeah. So the first time around, it was uh, between uh, my co-host and me. Um, my co-host is actually a gastro, uh, sorry, a gastroenterologist. Um, so yeah, working in the same place, we had this discussion and talk about having this podcast and we carried on with it. So I think for the first 16, 17 episodes. It was just both of us. And I think uh, we decided to change it up because I think after a while, people might just get sick of listening to both our voices. <laughs> so we got uh, a couple of friends to come over uh, from different, different specialties to just give some insight. Yeah. Right, right. And uh, it, it's I think it's it's still pretty new, right? Um, people in the medical faculty in Malaysia doing podcasts. I, I, I think... I, I know I'm one and I know you are another one, but I don't know if I, of a third, third uh, medical, third other medical podcast they are in the market. Are you aware of any of any others that are doing it? Frankly, frankly speaking, I didn't search. I didn't go <laughs> look up. 
Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've heard of a few overseas, but uh, none in Malaysia. Uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I know yours, and I know mine. That's, all, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> yeah, Andrew, I'm sure, I'm sure you know there are a lot more this kind of health and wellness medical podcasts uh, on in the US Can from be. the US. Yeah, you know, are there any any uh, you know um, ones that you you find it particularly interesting that you maybe you want to share with us? To be completely honest about it, I tend not to listen to medical podcasts in the U.S. <laughs> must be, I tend must to, be boring. <laughs> I, I tend to listen more to you know business and entrepreneur podcasts because I'm a business guy as opposed to a doctor. So sorry I can't help you there, but I'm sure there are dozens of good medical podcasts yeah. in the U.S. And frankly, even in Malaysia, BFM covers a lot of uh, medical topics they on do. their podcast. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and and Doctor Ian, you have you, have you been on BFM? No, not yet. Not, okay, not not achieve that kind of. Uh... No worries. I'm gonna hook you up. Yeah, because I know <laughs> oh, them pretty okay. well. <laughs> right. wow, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I think we're due to be back on BFM again, aren't we, Doctor Lim? Yes, soon, soon. Yeah, right. we're gonna go back soon as well. Yeah, so we're oh, gonna, nice. gonna gonna get you hooked up with BFM as well. Um. All so right. the the um. So um, yeah, I think you guys raised a very good point, right? Medical podcasts, when people hear about it, uh, it, it tends to be like, uh, oh, it's boring, it's technical, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know, it's 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 uh, not enjoyable. Right? It's like listening to business yeah. podcasts; it gets a bit exciting, you know. But when it comes to medical podcasts, like information, and you know, it can get a bit scary, yeah. a bit dreary. So, Doctor Ian, yeah. how do you make your podcasts uh, interesting, such that you know you can attract a wider audience? You know, mm. how what 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 are some of the key success factors that you that you have identified in the process of uh, recording that many episodes? You've done more episodes than us, by the way. <laughs> really? Okay. Many more. Uh, I I don't I don't know if uh, it's considered as a success um, my my opinion of the medical podcast is of course ans- trying to answer as many uh, lay person or lay people's questions right simple stuff that patients always ask me like oh um, I have this condition what can I eat what can't I do uh, and of course I try to be the I guess the class clown of the podcast I try to crack the jokes although sometimes it doesn't land quite as well maybe I need to watch a few more uh, comedy shows and whatnot but um, most of the time just trying to keep it as simple as possible and I think just trying to answer questions that people normally ask right I mean you I'm sure you have many friends or or even relatives who ask you if I have this condition um, what should I should I not do right I think it's a whole Asian culture about you know, can I eat this? Is there something that I cannot eat? Was uh, does food cost this? I mean, those kind of stuff. So I try to make it. Uh, I mean, I try to produce the podcast in that kind of approach. Hopefully, um, it's helpful and it's it attracts people. But I don't know whether we are successful or not. That's a completely entirely different story. Well, let, let me ask you a question about this. Uh, in the United States, doctors have to be very careful about legally about giving medical advice. So how do you handle that here in Malaysia on your podcast? Ah, That is a very good question. Um, My co-host is very, very careful, um, especially if... So what we do is, I I guess, um, initially, you know, I I spoke to uh, Dr. Lim about this, about doing podcasts, and he talked about how creating a podcast, it should be as spontaneous as possible. And I did bring this up with my co-host, 
she is a little bit more cautious in this manner. So what she normally does is she, after we have recorded, uh, she tries to screen through and see if there's any parts that needs to be removed. So as to not misinform the public. Yeah, so I was not quite agreeable at first because I wanted to keep it light and easy. But I guess that is an important aspect. We don't want to mislead the listeners. Right, because the fact is, you could provide a lot of information about a particular illness or what have Mm. you. But if you don't really know the patient and their specific symptoms or medical history, that could be problematic, right? Yep, definitely. So I think when we do talk about certain diseases, we are giving, we we do tell them that, you know, these are common symptoms. It may not always present uh, in this manner. I think what we always do is pretty much like a public service announcement where we tell people, you know, you have something that's worrying and we do tell them kind of the red flag signs or symptoms that they should, you know, seek help from a doctor. Seek, um, I mean, they need to see a doctor. A doctor needs to see them as, as you said, as you have mentioned. You know, people have different symptoms. So sometimes it's very important for someone to physically see them, examine them and run the appropriate investigations. So I think the whole idea of the podcast was not really a one-stop solution. It was just to kind of more of information giving and helping people to understand a little bit better. At the same time, we are trying to encourage people to seek help early, right? Um, I find that actually a lot of our patients, uh, especially cancer patients, they come late because, uh, and the most heartbreaking thing about most of these patients are when you tell them they have like stage four cancer and they ask, how come I never had any pain? I never had X symptom or Y symptom. And, you know, often we tell them that, you know, it doesn't present that way. So doing this podcast hopefully gives people a certain idea, um, tells them when to screen early for certain um, conditions and seek help early. Yeah, I, I think circling back to your statement on you're not sure whether you are successful or not, I think getting just by getting started, it's half the success. So you're definitely half successful at the very least. <laughs> right. And um, Great. yeah, and, and I, I, it's actually very encouraging because um, to see that, um, um, you know, you, you guys are really have doing it uh, with a mission and, and similar to us, you know, it's more like getting information out there. It's more like, you know, uh, educating the public and whatnot. And um the, the question is, is like, for example, you know, because there are quite some, sometimes there, are, there can be quite many school of thoughts when it comes to uh, treatment procedures or diagnostics or thinking about certain diseases, right? Uh, how do you guys like uh, ensure that you guys don't inject your biases or, or is that something that you do a disclaimer of or is, is it okay to, to express your opinion or are you guys more like fact-based and make sure that their biases are not involved and all these things? Mm. I don't know if we can completely avoid bias. Uh, having said that, when we do discuss, we we try as much as possible to follow um, whatever protocols that are out there. You know, published protocols. These are all uh, some things we you know before even we meet with um, our guests, our specialists, we do read up just to make sure we have a rough idea. I mean. For instance, the last few episodes, it was all about skin. And I kid you not, I know almost next to nothing about skin conditions. So we have to read up to get a, a rough idea. And we explain. And I guess um, what we try to do is just put out 
questions to even our guests to help answer some of the questions uh, that you know future patients might have. But having said that, of course, we may miss some things. We are human after all. Um, yeah, I'm hoping. And I, as I said, we, we do try to vet through the podcast after that to make sure that we have not missed out anything. There were, I think, one or two episodes where we put on additional information in the bottom of the podcast to direct people to the correct website to get more information. Yeah. So hopefully, in that case, that we have provided as accurate as possible information with the least amount of bias. How do you, how do you decide what topics you're going to cover on your podcast? Uh, when we started, um, because I'm essentially a general surgeon and my, my co-host is a gastroenterologist, we covered all the um, so-called common topics and uh, in what we think were important topics. Of course, there are some biasness there because as for me, I would always say, you know, liver cancer is important and whatnot. So we kind of discussed through before we started the podcast um, of the uh, first few episodes. And then subsequently, from time to time, we have this discussion. Just today, we had a discussion. What are the next few episodes going to be? Um, so we will try to, well, at least I tried to clump them in a so-called system. The first so-called season was the GI track. Uh, I wanted to do women and health. Um, but after a while, I realized we did not have that many topics. I think we stopped at about number five. Then we're doing a so-called skin series, which will be about another four or five episodes. Then we probably go into um, something like cardiovascular, the heart and the, the brain as well. So that one probably will be a very large area. Um, so basically by team as much as possible. Yeah, I personally think that all medical schools in Malaysia should make uh, listening to your podcast as part of the curriculum <laughs> because uh, it's, it's, it's like things in, sometimes in medical school, it's like the information are not exactly updated. But with you guys, yeah, yeah releasing new episodes and new information, uh, on you guys do it on a weekly basis, right? Uh, fortnightly. Yeah. Fortnightly, yeah, very consistent. I know you guys have been very consistent. And and uh, yeah. and I think, you know, that would also help in the uh, medical education and uh, uh, and you guys are in a teaching hospital as well, you know. I yeah. think that would be, would be really good. I, I actually have a friend who, I mean, I actually have a friend who's a medical student. I think it's his third year. He's in his clinical year. And he says like, man, listening to some of your podcasts saves me some studying time. I don't know how accurate that is. And I, I worry sometimes that we go a little bit too deep. And, uh, you know, I mean, how are they going to quote, you know, if they have a discussion in the lecture, hey, uh, I, you know, I heard that it's supposed to be, where's your source of information? Oh, podcast. I don't know if that's going to be accepted or not. But yeah, I mean, hopefully this is educational to, to medical students as well. That would be great. I think it's definitely a good alternative source of information. I mean, like yeah. nowadays, I, I even barely listen to the radio anymore. Most of the time, whenever I'm in my car, I put on podcasts. Uh, oh, yeah. It's, wow. it's, yeah, it's whether it's from uh, whatever area of interest that, that I felt like, you know, on that day, you know, it could be uh, medical, it could be entrepreneurship. And, and that's why, you know, Andrew and I, we decided to get together and say, you know what, let's do a, a, doctor, a medical and entre health and entrepreneurship uh, podcast. That's why our tagline is... Uh, the intersection of health, uh, aging, and uh, aging is our business, right? We're in the aging business yeah. and entrepreneurship, yeah. right? So that's why we call it the, the Dr. Pranos podcast. I think it is uh, becoming mainstream. 
uh, as a reliable source of information. It's definitely more reliable than Wikipedia, if you ask me, especially if it's coming from uh, qualified professionals like us, you know, in the process. I think, yeah, it could be a reliable source. Um, yeah, so just just to just to deviate a bit, right? Um, and and we know that you are a surgeon, right? And um, you're you're also besides doing the podcast, you're also actively practicing as a as a surgeon in a, in, a, in a hospital. You're also a lecturer, uh, if yeah. I'm not if I'm not mistaken, right? In a teaching hospital yeah. as well. So maybe can you tell us a little bit more about like your passion and and how did you end up in medical school? How did you end up in becoming a surgeon and and now, you know, uh, and, and how did you decided that liver transplant is, is your thing and, and going into, you know, education and all, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about your journey and in, in, in getting, yeah. getting to where you are today. Yeah. Um, my story, I think, like pretty much everyone is probably a little bit, I don't know, mine, I, I feel mine is a little bit funny. Uh, I've just been recently asked this question a couple of times over by different, different people. Um, why did you choose to be a doctor? Uh, I think most Asian kids who grew up in the 80s or the 90s probably had the same answer. You know, my, well, I mean, I give credit to my parents, but I think when I was younger, my parents only told, like most Asian parents said your choices of occupation in the future would be I think you would know, engineer, doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant, accountant <laughs> lawyer. Doctor. So I looked through, you know, those, I looked through my options and like, hmm, doctor seems interesting. The white coat looks good. Uh, yeah, let's go for that. Right, um, right. Yeah, and, and, so and, that, and that I, was the beginning. I appreciate that you're being very honest with this, right? Because like, some people say, <laughs> oh, I want to save lives and all, all these are all nonsense answers. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I answered in my interview to get into medical school. You know, I want to make a difference on save lives. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, I mean, not not to stereotype, but most of my Asian friends in America tend to be in those professions. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's really like that, right? I mean, the Asians, uh, well, whether they want to admit to that or not, but it it, it really is. I, I don't know now. I'm not sure, uh, but back in my day, it it really is. I mean, look at most of my classmates. They are most of them are in this field five occupations that I just mentioned earlier on. So yeah, Andrew, yeah. So Andrew, from, we like we like the hard stuff, Andrew. We we don't like uh, social social science and all this nonsense. We like the hard stuff. <laughs> yeah, see I, I think um, American parents are a little more honest. I think they looked at me and said, you're probably not smart enough to be a doctor and engineer. <laughs> so I studied I economics. <laughs> I don't know if my uh, I don't know if Asian parents give you the chance, you know. Uh, there, there are these jokes I don't know if you've ever heard you know, you go to your parent and you go like, hey, dad, I got 98 out of 100, 98%. Parent, you know, you're expecting them to give you a pat on the back. You go like, what? 98? You know, John down the road got 99. What happened to you? Uh, it's probably accurate for most of the Asian families, at least in Malaysia and back in my day. So, I still, yeah. Mom and dad, I still love you if you're watching this. <laughs> Yeah, I, hey, I I love them. I do. <laughs> my parents are happy if we could break seventy percent. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm trying to yeah not do that approach. Hopefully, you know things things turn out well, my kids. But yeah, I mean, I entered medical school. Um, but you know, entering medical school, the 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 love kind of grew, especially when I hit in, I went to clinical school. Uh, my clinical school was in Canada. Uh, it was a very eye-opening ex- experience, but uh, I really enjoyed 
everything, you know, from the interaction to, you know, it's, I think medicine is pretty much uh, another one of the many occupations that's really problem solving. And uh, I mean, after a while, things can kind of be the same problem, but every once in a while you, know, you have a challenging problem. And why surgery? Um, I think when I was younger, uh, with all the shows that you watch, you know, ER, you see the surgeons flying in and out, the saving lives, uh, it looked really, really cool. Um, but I, when I had an opportunity to really go into the operation theater, uh, or operating room, and you know, seeing the patient before and after, uh, you know, me really made me go, wow, you know, such a huge difference. The things that can be done with the surgery, uh, and of course, you know, within surgery itself, there are so many branches, right? Why not uh, like orthopedic or ENT and so on and so forth? I don't know why. I even had an argument once with someone who wanted to be a neurosurgeon, you know, and I had, I, at that point of time, I didn't have a witty comeback. You're like, why do you want to mess around with the bowels, you know? And look at me, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. You don't have your brain, you can't live. And I'm like, uh, 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 yeah, I was like, uh, but if you can't, you know, poop, you're going to have problems as well, right? So <laughs> that's the best I could come up with. So um, even with the many obstacles along the way, and many people tell me like, you're choosing general surgery, are you sure it's a hard lifestyle? Uh, I did some of my electives in America in the US uh, and some of my friends were there like, you sure, you sure this is like hardcore stuff, you know, you got to wake up early, you got to go back late, you got to work through like almost seven days a week. It's going to be like that tough, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no, this is what I want to do. So, yep, long story short, after 12, 15, 15 years, medical school through uh, master's, I became a surgeon. Huh, interesting. I, I I never knew you trained in the in, in North America, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I was there for two years in Canada. Yeah, did a two month stint in Indiana. Yeah, Indiana, Indianapolis. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. And and right, very interesting journey. And and, and I, I thank you for sharing your uh, thoughts and your experience throughout this. Uh, I think this is also going to be helpful for some of the budding our budding junior colleagues uh, when uh, making a decision. Sometimes I think you just got to go with your heart. Like for me, I, I, I knew I wasn't really clinical material. So uh, at a very early stage, I decided, you know, entrepreneurship is more for me. So uh, hmm. yeah, so so I've decided to be an entrepreneur instead. <laughs> yeah. And I'm very glad you did that. Yeah. yeah I think you're I think, doing a good job, man. Yeah, I think I think that's where, that's where I excel uh, in my field as well. But like, like that being said, right? You like your experience being in North America, uh, in Canada, and in US, it's actually two totally different um, healthcare systems. One is uh, more socialized, and and the US obviously is more of the capitalized, capitalist kind of uh, um, healthcare hmm. system. Like, can you yeah. share with us a little bit about how you know, what what differences that you have observed uh, comparing the Malaysian system to the Canadian system? Maybe a little bit uh, on US system, and maybe Andrew, you can further expand on the US system as well. Uh, when it comes to healthcare, okay. So uh, maybe I start with the Canadian system first. Uh, like you said, I think I guess it's it is somewhat a uh, socialist system. Uh, healthcare is free actually in Canada, except for medication, which you do need to have health insurance for that. Uh, it is pretty good because anything at all, small surgery, big surgery, admission. Um, 
a visit to the family doctor, it's covered. But if you do need medication, that needs to be paid for, uh, either by out of your own pocket, or if I think they have insurance, which I didn't really ask at that point of time. Uh, in the US, I suppose you need pretty much insurance for everything uh, from healthcare to medication. Um, I won't touch too much on that because I was only there for two months. Uh, but I do know that one thing that really scared me while I was in the, in the States was I was watching TV. And I, I will always remember <laughs> there was an advertisement out there uh, by a lawyer saying, if you were wrong by a doctor or if you're given the wrong medication, please come and see us. I'm like, oh man. Uh, but I think having said that, um, US has really fantastic doctors. They're really good at their subspecialty. I think they're really good uh, to ensure that everything is done well for their patients. Okay, so now Malaysia. Um, Malaysia's healthcare, what would you describe it to be? Um, it is one of the, or maybe the most affordable healthcare in the world. Um, having pay minimal amount to see a doctor, whether it's a regular um, clinic visit uh, or if it's hospitalization. I still remember one of the uh, pictures that was shared, I think, on social media about uh, a man having to pay his hospital bill after his mom was in the intensive care unit for, I think, about two or three months. He was expecting tens of thousands of ringgit. But when he went to the counter, he paid, uh, I think he only paid in an excess of about 100 ringgit plus plus. So healthcare is cheap. Um, is it great? I guess uh, it's suffice for now. What we lack in, I feel, is subspecialty. We are not as subspecialized as the States. I will give an example. So one of uh, my my juniors from medical school, um, he is, what was the term for it? Um, okay, he was studying a, a subspecialty branch of cardiology, right? So cardiology is basically the physician that looks at the heart. Um, he looks specifically only at electrical activity of the heart, nothing else. He doesn't do any... Uh, angioplasty, uh, he doesn't treat, you know, valvular disease or you know, other kind of stuff. He only looks at uh, electrocardiograms. And if there is some sort of disturbance within the electrical activity, he acts on that, he treats that. So it's a very, very like sub-specialized branch uh, of cardiology. Whereas in Malaysia, uh, we our subspecialty of cardiology is probably just mass interventional, which covers everything. So, yeah, so that's one of the big differences I would see. I think Canada probably has the same as well. They're probably quite subspecialized. Maybe not as subspecialized as the States, but uh, definitely more so than in Malaysia. So, so are you saying there are a lot of subspecialties that we wouldn't find here. For example, I had an ear disease many years ago called uh, mm -hmm. cholesteatoma. And okay. I had to have four surgeries twice on each ear. I went to the New York Ear and Eye Hospital in Manhattan, top notch, a great doctor. 
successful. Uh, what I find that kind of, you know, microsurgery in my ears here in Malaysia. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I have to ask, but yeah, uh, I think, I'm I not think, sure. Yeah, I think maybe even if there's someone that can do it, it's only very handful. It, like yep. it, yeah, I think it's it, probably it, one or two, maybe one or two, and and probably you have a better chance in finding more sub specialists like that in Singapore. So probably yes, some of these cases will be treated in Singapore instead of in Malaysia. Um, yep. So yeah, I think yeah, that's that's and that's considered a pretty rare condition, right? In Malaysia, cholesteatoma. Yeah, cholesteatoma. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, not not. I I have haven't heard of it, heard of it much around Malaysia in, in, in our practice. Well, so. I think I I think basically the something eats in the 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 structure of your inner ear, and they have to go in and repair it essentially. Right, right, right yeah. So, so actually, I think in Malaysia, when it comes to the private, well, well, just now you mentioned the story of the man just having to pay hundred ringgit for I three two or three months of ICU stay. That's government. Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah, more than to clarify that that that's that's in it's the government. government. Yeah, government, right. and and that's only for Malaysians, Malaysian citizens. So if right. it's a foreigner like Andrew, you know, you get you're gonna get services here in Malaysia. You probably need your insurance, and it really doesn't yep. doesn't really make much of a difference if you go to the government sector or the private sector because you have to pay. The insurance will pay for it anyway, because you yep. have to pay uh, for medical services if you go to the government service in Malaysia. And I think the private sector in Malaysia will be more similar to the American system, whereby everything has to be insured if you pay out of pocket it's actually quite costly like recently I had an aunt that uh, uh, got rest her soul just recently passed away but she actually went to a private hospital for a spine surgery it was a pretty basic surgery and uh, she was there in the hospital for maybe more than a week a little more than a week but uh, it cost us about close to 100,000 a little more than 100,000 ringgit for the entire stay in a private yeah. hospital uh, because she wasn't yeah. she, she didn't have health insurance so yeah. we also have this kind of similar issues whereby if you go to the government uh, site, so we actually, uh, she actually went to the government site first, but the government site uh, said that there was a list, there was a queue and they couldn't operate on her yeah. as soon as possible. And we wanted to like, although we know that her chances of recovery were, were not high, we didn't want to delay it any further. That's why, you know, we, we decided to transfer her to a private hospital to, to get the surgery done as soon as possible. But then, you know, that's, yeah. that's the cost that is attached to it as well. But isn't this often a problem you find in Malaysia with socialized medicine, in Canada, maybe the UK, that you can get things done cheaply or not pay at all, but you may have to wait? Yep, that is um, an ongoing issue. I'm not sure, but you, uh, I guess it, it should be the same uh, because the systems are similar. Uh, it depends from hospital to hospital, and it depends on the type of disease. So uh, I'm not saying what, uh, I mean, the practice that goes on in my hospital is the same as the rest of the country. Uh, but for us, cancers, uh, which you probably might think that it's still a bit slow, but we do try to get them operated within, within a month. Yeah. Uh, but of course, in, if it's, it's always best to operate as soon as possible. So some people will say within days, right? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's we, a month. That, that's from diagnosing the cancer to the surgery. That's a month, right? Yeah. So that that means you already got the histopathology. You already got the the cell right. uh, type report. You already got the scans, all the diagnostics, all done. And that to surgery is a month. But getting to the diagnostics part, getting to the getting the scans done, getting the the the, the pathology side done, that could also take some more time as well in the uh, public sector. Yeah. So the, the, again, depending on which hospital. Uh, in my 
pace of practice is a little bit faster. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I think generally the sentiment is you're right, Andrew, that uh, pretty yeah. much because healthcare is given out freely in Malaysian, Malaysian citizens, uh, they are more often than not, we, we have to ration the resources we have uh, in, and, yeah. and, and to really learn how to prioritize. Sometimes, in, 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 you know, sometimes it, like with the COVID situation and everything all, it's like sometimes doctors even have to play God to decide who lives and who dies because not everybody's going to get a ventilator, for example. And uh, I think mm. this is one of the, for me, I think this is one of the toughest things a doctor has to go through to, to like really have the, the mental aptitude to, to decide, you know, who lives and who dies. And, and I think that's just crazy. Mm. I, I can't handle it. So I'm out of the hospital system. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't have to handle that. So thankfully. Yeah. But, but speaking of COVID, you, you guys did not speak on speak about COVID on your podcast. I don't remember hearing any episodes on that. I, I did. Uh, that was the, the least heard one because uh, yeah, we had this debate about trying to do it early uh, and whatnot. She's like, nah, I think everyone else is, is giving a talk on COVID. So she's like, uh, let's not do that. But we did do one in the end because um, I don't know if you noticed, but I, I did have, I, I, I was infected with COVID. I didn't know uh, this. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I'm finding was, it now. Now I was I was infected with COVID, um, and we missed out one uh, one of the episodes, one of the weeks. So we did kind of a retrospective um, kind of talk on COVID and my experience with COVID, uh, and just put it there. But I think that was the one of the least hurt. I think everyone was sick of listening about COVID by then, so nobody listened to it. No, uh, we we are definitely going to circle back to your whole COVID experience, but let's just maybe just finish our thoughts on the on the healthcare system. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and 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 as I understand that uh, you are going to Taiwan to to uh, basically subspecialize in your liver surgery yeah. to to, yeah. to basically get your get yourself fully certified. Why Taiwan? I mean, yeah. Taiwan, I, I know we've heard about Taiwan as also a very good uh, healthcare system in, in the East, right? Mm. But like, why did you choose Taiwan? Why why is that your destination uh, as compared to, you know, Western countries or whatnot? Ah, okay. Well, I think number one, given prior experience in the Western country already, I would like to see something different in Eastern country. That's one of my personal reasons. But I think uh, more than that, um, liver cancers, hepatocellular carcinoma is uh, quite big within this eastern side. You know, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Uh, there is, I think, some to some extent, Japan and Korea as well. But definitely in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and China. So, uh, given these few countries, um, and of course. Having known someone from that particular country, it's a little bit easier to get yourself attached to. And the guy that I want to work with is one of um, the experts in so-called uh, the field that I want to go to, right? He does a lot of uh, laparoscopic liver surgery um, very efficiently. He is featured in many um, conferences and whatnot, right? So I managed to meet up with him. Uh, I... I saw, I've seen how he's worked. So I, I really wanted to learn from him, given that he covers actually not just liver, but he does pancreas as well. Uh, my, uh, sorry, laparoscopically. And he does liver transplant. So I can kind of learn everything all in one go, although my goal is pretty much on liver. Um, and of course, uh, language is also an issue. I think you should know I am what people call a banana. <laughs> Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Uh, my Chinese isn't very good. So 
Hong Kong wouldn't actually be a bad place to go to, but I uh, felt it was a bit unstable. So I did not want to go there. Uh, China would actually be actually not bad of an option because their numbers of cases are really, really high. You get experience by sheer volume, the, the volume, right? Uh, but, you know, I really can't, I, I think it will be like chicken and duck talking in China. At least in Taiwan, uh, I can understand the accent a little bit better and they can speak some English. So it's a little bit better there. And uh, yeah, those are the few reasons why I chose Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. when you say Hong Kong is a bit unstable, you're talking about the whole political situation there and the unrest. And all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. And uh, and just to clarify, like when you mentioned laparoscopic surgery, uh, for those that are not uh, from technical backgrounds, right? That means keyhole surgery, whereby you right. don't slice open the entire abdomen. You just dig a few holes and just put in probes to to operate on that. And and that is basically yep. what you want to uh, uh, advance in, right? Yeah. Uh, that because you know sometimes when you remove the chunks of the liver, it's it's definitely easier to just open the patient up big. Uh, but you know, doing keyhole surgery basically helps the patient in terms of recovery, less yeah, pain, minimally invasive, yeah. right? Correct. And yeah. of course, if you know you have to go back in for a second time, uh, it's actually more favorable when they have minimally invasive surgery for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. There is not so much uh, scarring uh, adhesions. I think, as you know, uh, it makes the surgery easier. So I would really like to bring that back. And of course, uh, Malaysia does have a bit of liver transplant. It's just that. Uh, you know, it's not great. It's trying to pick up. Hopefully, I will be able to contribute in, in that direction as well in the future. Yeah. When you when you say not great, uh, what are we talking about? Is it the skills? We are not so highly skilled or we don't have that many cases or we don't have that many donors or how's the situation yeah. like when it comes to liver transplant Multi, in Malaysia? Multifactorial. Uh, we do have the skill sets, although um, it's... Not that many. There's only a select few that does yeah, it. Uh, yeah. At this point of time, it is Slang Hospital for Ministry of Health. And uh, University Hospital would be University of Malaya. Um, there are two types of basically organ donation. So cadaveric, which is basically from a dead person, or we have living donor. Um, essentially, most of previously, we were doing mostly cadaveric, right? But I think, unfortunately, not many people donate their organs even after death, right? And Malaysia is such uh, that even if you do pledge as an organ donor, uh, family still gets the final say to not remove the organs when the patient has passed on. So that happens. I think even a lot of people, they have signed up to donate the organs. It, it doesn't happen at the end of the day. So when there's organ shortage, then of course, the recipients are not going to get those organs. Uh, what University of Malaya did uh, is to start a living-related uh, donor transplant, which means one of the relatives who is uh, blood-compatible uh, are able to give a part of their liver for the recipient. So they, I think they're doing it quite regularly now. Uh, from what I understand, it's almost every month. Yeah. So I'm hoping that you know I've get I've achieved acquired some of these skill sets and learning a little bit more about liver transplant. I would be able to contribute in that direction as well. Mm, very interesting, mm. and uh, yeah, it, it's it's certainly um, very different situation. I think in Malaysia, whereby you can actually pledge. To, I, I'm a pledge organ donor, but uh, wow. my my will gets to 
get uh, gets to be o- overridden by my 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 family who is left behind apparently. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. So that's I think. But but in US it's different, right? Andrew, if you pledge to be an organ donor, basically that's it, right? Yeah, I, I don't get the point. If you want to be an organ donor, what's the point if somebody can override it? I think. Uh, I, I well. I really can't answer that. I it, it's a, it's such a point. Of, yeah, it serves as a point of reference at all. Okay, he has expressed an interest to donate his organs, but uh, final decision makers are still up to the uh, family yeah. members that are left behind. But but like okay, uh, I know we've gone now a bit of a rabbit hole in in terms of liver transplant. But I just want to go back a bit to the whole healthcare system thing again. Like in your opinion, right, Andrew and and Ian, you have been exposed to both sides, and Andrew, of course, now that you are also learning about the, the system in the east and all. What do you guys think is the better way of uh, doing healthcare, right? Uh, in a, on a policy level, um, whether it's, uh, it's is it better, like how the US does it in Canada or, or, or how the US does it or, or how Canada does it or, or, you know, how we do it in Malaysia? What do you guys think is the best way of, of, of doing healthcare? Well, personally, I don't, lo- I don't really like the US system in the sense that the way it works is that to get health insurance, you basically get it through your employer. So when you quit your job, move to another job, you get health insurance with the new company. Or you have to self-insure if you're an entrepreneur. Or if you don't have a job, you have to find health insurance somewhere. And unless you get on this, quote, Obamacare system, it can be very expensive. And even parts of Obamacare are very expensive, depending on where in the country you live. So I tend to favor a system where everybody has a shot at inexpensive or no-cost health insurance. Yeah, but then, but then wouldn't the, the but then I think you know like what Dr. Ian mentioned just now, like the 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 the, doc, the doctors in US are, are so highly skilled, highly advanced because maybe partially they are really incentivized by the financial incentives of um, you know really becoming good at their crafts as compared to you know in Malaysia we kind of just want to do everything in the general sense, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand that, but in the US, if you don't have a good job with a good employer that has a good health insurance policy, you're likely not to get access to those doctors. So that's a bit of a problem for me. Yeah, Dr. Ian, you, you know, you have any thoughts on this? I think that's a really tough question because there's no perfect system as of yet. There are good aspects to every healthcare system that I think we can adopt from. The good thing about, I mean, healthcare, it's very hard to self-sustain if there is no money, right? You, you do need money to get new equipment. You need money to train doctors, not just incentivize. I mean, uh, I, I've spoken to a lot of doctors in Malaysia and a lot of times many leave the government not because of more money. It's for other reasons, which I will not state here. Uh, you know, but the re- one of the reasons why they leave is they cannot, uh, you know, do certain things and they cannot carry out certain due yeah. to lack of finances, right? And yeah. Um, um, I will say the reasons like mostly politics, red tapes, uh, backstabbing, all this. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. I know you. Yeah. You, don't, you don't have to agree with me yet, but but yeah, it, it's a lot of this going on in uh, in the socialized healthcare system as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I think there are some merits um, to having some charges. It's just that where do you draw the line? It's very difficult, right? Who do you who do you want to please? Do you want to please? Uh, the patients, do you want to please the doctors, do you want to please the, the administrators, the politicians, where is the middle point? It's very difficult to point out. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm not in a level of administration, so it's very hard for me to say 
I may be looking at it at, um, at, a, at a healthcare personnel point of view, right? So it's very easy for me to say that, you know, administrators is not doing their job, but I think one of my bosses recently became the director of the hospital and everyone's one, he shares reasons why certain things are not being funded. And when I hear it, and then I realize that I do not see those sites, right? I only see what I want to see. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I probably need to be exposed a little bit more to the administration and maybe learn a little bit more about how healthcare is supposed to be done. At this point of time, uh, uh, I do what I can do, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, it it is pretty tough. I mean, uh, like you said, there's no no perfect system. But my 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 um, well, the, the to play devil's advocate, right? I I'm don't get me wrong. I'm very thankful that in Malaysia we have a healthcare system that is very affordable. Primary care is yeah. still pretty affordable. Um, you know, uh, government hospitals basically everything is pretty much free for me as a Malaysian. I'm very thankful for that. But um, the the only problem I have with this system is um, how do we get people to 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 develop awareness and get educated such that they don't think that, okay, I can just abuse my body throughout my entire life and then depend on the government to take care of me when it, when it comes to the end. Uh, so, so I think um, there is certain level of education that also needs to come in hand as hand in hand as well with this system so that people don't just view um, uh, healthcare as a entitlement, which I know many people do it now. Uh, oh, I, I, I'll get my drugs free and I just, don't if, even if I don't finish the medication, I just toss it out because the government gives it to me anyway, and you know, resulting in a lot of wastage, leakage, corruption, you know, all these that are happening as a result of the whole socialized system and 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 people that are I mean Malaysians are supposed to benefit from the system more often than not, no, or not more not to say more often than not, I say very often would would abuse the system, which I find it very uh, unpalatable coming from you know maybe because I'm also. An entrepreneur coming from a business background as well, I do find that these things are it's a bit sad lah, to look at all this, lah, you know. Yeah. Um I, I don't know, man. I mean, honestly speaking, I, I know many uh people who can afford their own medication, who can afford to go to private, would still queue up an hour in a government clinic because they say, hey, I paid taxes. Tax, why yeah. not <laughs> why not make full advantage of it, take full advantage of it? But the fact is you know, there are more, there are other people who need it more, but you, this is the thing you can't control. Right? And this, these people are, you know, sometimes actually very well educated as well. So is it really education? I don't know. Um, just some things you can't control, I suppose. I, I think it's human nature that if you can get something for free that you might have to pay money for, you would try it potentially. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So civic yeah. mindedness, I think, is uh, something you know. It, it's not just. I, I don't think it's just a purely healthcare issue. I think education comes hand in hand as well, and I think these two, these two will have to, will have to grow together if, if we are going to develop a, a generation of Malaysians that are going to appreciate the system, not abuse it, and at the same time for the system to be able to sustain us. You know, because as you mentioned, you know, you know, money has to come from somewhere. Right, so yep. these are taxpayer dollars that are that are going to the healthcare system that could very well go into other things, right? Development and all these other things. But we, have, we uh, all have to, have to subsidize the healthcare yeah. of people. I, I do think that one way to get people to be more careful about how they use healthcare resources, particularly if they're free, it starts from the top. Whether it's Malaysia, the United States, it starts with the politicians who tend to be corrupt and sort of lead the way when it comes to this, these things. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unsurprisingly, like like what you mentioned just now, you know, if it's free, then people will 
you know, try to fully utilize it, right? Uh, to the to to mal to Mali put it, right, right, right. Um, yeah, I think I think this is going to be an ongoing discussion. Uh, which healthcare system is most viable, and uh, we're gonna have to just see how it unfolds as as we go along because we know that many populations are now aging. Aging is our business, yeah. so we are, we are seeing populations that are aging. Uh, essentially, you know, social whether it's social social security in the US or uh, taxpayer uh, EPF uh, in, in Malaysia or, or all this. Um, um, funds that the government has uh, for, for, for us, budget that we have for our healthcare is essentially like a big money game, right? It's a pyramid scheme. So the old people that has contributed now gets to enjoy and then the new generation that are coming up, now we are contributing into the coffer to pay for all these retirees and so on and so forth. But with the, with the demographic shifting towards aging population, that means there are less and less uh, new generation, younger generation contributing to the coffers of of the healthcare to subsidize the healthcare of these old people. So we don't know. Maybe the system will, will collapse some some way, sometime and somehow. Only time will tell whether which system is the most sustainable and most viable and can also deliver the best quality of healthcare. Well, but let me ask you though, even though you may contribute contribute money through your taxes as a younger person here, it's my sense that money going to the elderly, you know, we call it social security in the US, isn't all that much here or can cover a lot of people, right? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think just in Malaysia, we, we don't contribute our taxes specifically to any funds when it comes to subsidizing the healthcare. It all goes into the government budget. Yeah. And uh, we don't know sometimes what the politicians do with the budget. We don't know. Yeah, uh, we, I'm not going to speculate. But uh, if if things are ran efficiently, we, we should be able to sustain a healthcare system uh, in Malaysia because it's only about 5%, 5 or 6% of our total healthcare budget. Um, that is if provided things are done efficiently, effectively, you know, free of corruption, with integrity, which I think these are also, so there's the healthcare, there's the education and also the policy part that needs to be tightened up to, to make sure that, you know, things are not um, uh, misused or, or, or uh, 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 well, uh, wasted, you know, or, or abused, right, to simply put it. Uh, so I think there are still many elements in fine-tuning the Malaysian healthcare system. Yeah, it really kind of scares me when politicians get a large chunk of money and then they get to decide what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes me nervous as well. But uh, yeah, that's why I think many people are motivated to go into politics because of the power and uh, and monetary rewards that comes along with it, which I think it's a topic for maybe another day. Now, um, we, we, we are <laughs> coming up to the top and uh, top of the hour. Um, uh, we, I really want to, want to delve into your experience with COVID and because... You know, there are so much speculations that are flying out there. There are people that are saying Omicron is good news because the pandemic is coming to an end. Uh, Omicron is bad news because it's going to infect more people, going to kill more people in the process and everything. Else. But, okay, you know, we have a lot of information and data out yeah. there, but it's nothing like listening to someone's personal account when uh, that, that has gone through the ordeal themselves and, and they can, you know, kind of tell their own experience, even though it, yeah. it, it may just serve as anecdotal data, right? Just, you know, one, only one, one point, one point of, one yeah. data point, right? One person experience, but yeah. it's still good to hear from someone that we know and, and uh, we trust that won't exaggerate or won't lie to us or won't make up data because of their own, uh, for their own benefits, right? So, maybe you want to share with us when did, when did this happen and how did how do you handle the whole thing especially you have kids at home you have three children mm. and and, yep. and you know how do you handle the whole situation uh, having covid as and where do you where do you think you got it from you know uh you know the whole the whole covid issue yeah gone through so um this was back in august yeah august i think just around uh Madeka okay during uh, yeah 
31st, yeah, some, somewhere around then. I, I remember coming back one Friday evening feeling partic- particularly strange, like just not my usual self. I think for the past uh, year and a half, I've been pretty well because I think everyone's not been going out, you know, everyone's been wearing masks, right? So I've not had one time where I was ill, but that day just felt very, very strange. Came home. Uh, I already told my wife, I'm not feeling quite right. Let's not eat together. Uh, let's not, you know, come close. Quarant- so basically starting the quarantine process. My- starting to quarantine yourself. Start off. Yeah. Start off. Yeah, start off. When I put my kids to sleep, I told them no hugs, no kiss tonight. Uh, when they went to bed, I did the rapid test kit and two lines came out. Um, and I'm like, oh, man. Uh, at that point of time, you know, there's a lot of questions. Where did I get it? To be honest, I really don't know. Um, wasn't seeing patients that week because we were taking turns due to the whole COVID process. I did have a meeting full of uh, people to which, full, a full room of people to which they did do the COVID test and none of them had it. So after I limited all my sources, I still don't know where I got it from, uh, but that's beside the point. So I think then began the whole uh, isolation process. My wife was, you know, discussing with me to see whether I should stay at home in the room, or whether I should find some place to isolate. You know, like a COVID hotel, right? Uh, and if you know me, or if anyone knows me, I can be quite the miser. I started calculating don- dollars and cents, like oh, <laughs> how much I need to spend. You know, if it's ten days in hotel, blah blah blah. Yeah, the, the government, the, hospital, the government really should be paying our doctors better, Andrew. They're not paying our specialists <laughs> enough, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry so, to interrupt. So I was, I was calculating, and I said, um, you know, I said, I mean, let me let me slip it off tonight, and uh, we'll see how tomorrow morning. So I start in a separate room. And the next day, the fever started. The whole body ache started was pretty bad. Uh, I already had bought uh, the SpO2 meter, the oxygen saturation meter to check uh, previously. Uh, no, sorry, someone gave it to me. So I did my checks a few times during the day. It was still good, right up to about four plus in the evening. At the point of time, uh, I kept eating, even though I didn't have very much appetite, but just really didn't feel great despite the uh, Paracetamols that I've been taking. Did you lose your sense of so, taste and smell? Uh, I'll get to that. Okay. Right. Not yet at that point of time. Um, so I checked my oxygen. It dropped. It went to 94. Oh, dear. Wow. So I was like, hmm. Yeah. So I was like, hmm. Maybe it's just because I've, you know, just woken up from my nap. Let me do, you know, a few deep breathing exercises and I'll recheck. Still at 94. So all sorts of things went through my mind because you know the process, right? What can happen, where it can lead up to, right? Mm-hmm. So I called my friend in the hospital and said, hey, um, this is what's happening. My oxygen level is this. What should I do? Should I be admitted to the hospital? He said, yeah, okay, fine. We'll book you a room. You can come. So after I did all that, I checked the oxygen level again. It was 89. Oh. So I was like, um, yeah. I was like, oh man, this is, at that point of time, I think, I was getting a little bit frantic because, I mean, you know, you see all these patients, you know what to do, but now it's yourself. And not just thinking about yourself, thinking about your family, right? You're thinking about what's my kids, what's going to happen, what's going to happen to my wife. So I started writing down all my 
bank passwords, my pins, and whatever not. I told her, you know, the email is this, pins are this, blah, 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 blah. It's all here. Okay. So uh, didn't want to call an ambulance because uh, they're not going to send you all the way. And again, I know dollars and cents, it's going to be expensive if I hire a private ambulance. For well, 600 over so, 600, 700 ringgit per trip. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, me being me, I drove to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> With oxygen saturation of 89%. Yeah. Wow, brother. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Um, in hindsight, that was not a wise idea. But anyway, uh, reached hospital, checked my SPO2 there. It was on the dot 95. So I was like, man, is it the machine or is it really me? I don't know. But to be honest, the next few days until my fever broke every time, they checked my oxygen. It was always at 94, 95. Okay. Right. When I finally broke the fever, it went back up to 98. So there Which was your usual. some form of element. Yeah. So by the third day, uh, the, which was the second day I was in hospital, I woke up in the morning, I ate my breakfast. I'm like, hmm, I, I know hospital food is bad, but I didn't expect it to be this bad, this bland, right? And I just continued eating. Then I put, I popped the sweet in my mouth and there was no taste. Then oh. I started sniffing things and I, okay, I've lost my taste and smell. Yeah. Uh, so those few days was just pure rest. Uh, every time they came and checked my oxygen, I would worry. Uh, but when it finally picked up, as I said, um, my fever had broke, broke by then. I mean, it was completely normal, no more ache, nothing, just no taste, no smell. Uh, so I think that was day five of my sickness. Then I asked, so can I go home and isolate? Or my wife's like, if you don't want to pay for a hotel, you might as well just stay in hospital. But I really couldn't, uh, despite having my own room, um, it, it wasn't very comfortable. And I was, uh, I think probably going a little bit nuts at that point of time, looking at the wall, looking at the clock, looking, trying to look outside through the, the tinted window. Yeah, no free you know, Wi-Fi in government hospitals. No, there, there is in my oh, okay. hospital. I okay. mean, there is. Uh, well, I mean, for staff at least, you know. Okay. My, I work there, right? Yeah. But uh, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't put myself to keep watching on my laptop and whatnot. And people were very nice. People sent me stuff, sent me books. But I just couldn't. So I decided to check myself out into a COVID hotel. Uh, and had a very good solid five-day rest after that and came back refreshed. The only thing that stayed with me for about a month plus was the no taste and no smell. Oh, uh, that really sucked, man. Yeah. Um, well, to a certain extent, uh, because I have a very sensitive nose. I don't know if you know that. Uh, I know that, yes. I sniff, <laughs> yeah, I sniff scents, uh, perfumes, smoke. It, it triggers, right? I start sneezing. So... <laughs> For the first time, that didn't happen because I can't smell anything, right? Ah. So I don't know why. Yeah. And I subsequently, I think up to now, uh, I have actually a bit of reduced smell sense. So uh, I live in an apartment. Sometimes people smoke. I used to be the first one to detect it. Now my wife's telling me someone's smoking close the window. So I'm like, I don't smell anything. So I think there is still some residue. Uh, but yeah, otherwise I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're not the first person saying that uh, 
there's the sense of smell and taste doesn't really come back 100%. Some like uh, one of my uh, colleague, um, you know, Dr. Tan in Penang, she also uh, suffered from the same symptoms and Angela, which is one of one of our team members also, you know, they, they said it's not 100%. They don't get it back 100% even after a few months. So yeah, yeah I hope I hope things are going to turn out for the better for you, man. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and 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 Andrew, we are beginning to see a team here, right? This is our season two, and you are our second guest on the show, and you are our the second guest on our show that has caught COVID. <laughs> Already, wow! The first, the first one was actually my brother, and he also caught COVID uh, on the way home from the US, probably in the plane. Wow. Uh, okay. probably Omicron variant as well, because that was the uh, variant, the dominant variant in, in the states when he was coming back. So uh, I think uh, our next, I think our next guest may have had it too, but we'll have to ask him. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so so really, I mean, uh, listeners or, or, or viewers on YouTube, you know, um, how long are we going to live in fear of COVID? Right, I think I think it's it's time for us to to and and this is I think. Oh, here uh, comes Doctor Joe Rogan. Yeah, I, I think I think this is uh, this is the theme theme that we really really do not focus on as much. Right, we are talking about vaccines, we are talking about um, cure, treatment, we are talking about isolation, lockdowns, but. Uh, how I mean, uh, Dr. Ian, you being in a in a government system, right? How often do we actually tell people that the best defense against infectious diseases is to boost up our immune system? Yeah, we don't really yeah. talk talk about that that much, right? We we as human beings, like in very human nature, we are looking for the fast cure, which is the the, the vaccine, the booster, the jabs. You know, these these are the ones that are supposed to protect us from all this. I'm not saying don't do all this. You should absolutely get your your vaccines. You should actually get absolutely get uh, do whatever necessary protocol. The yeah. fact is, people don't want to hear that they're overweight and don't exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, or that they smoke. Yeah, these are the basics, right? Right. The basics are, you know, have a healthy lifestyle, eat well. You know, Doctor Ian is is very fit, right? He he's a runner, so uh, yeah, and 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 even someone as fit as him still suffers from pretty devastating and 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 lasting symptoms. So I, I think that's why I've been more careful about getting COVID because I'm a bit older than all of you guys. Ages. Age is not something we can control, not a factor we can control, but the rest, you know, whether it's exercising or eating well, I think this is something right. very important that we should be encouraging people to do. In Malaysia, like almost half the population is overweight or obese. That's worrying, man. I blame, that on, I blame that on fast food from America. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's definitely a contributing factor. We got to really, really look into that and eat better and all. Yeah, Dr. Yen, um, uh, I think it's about time for us to wrap up the show. Do you have anything you would like to share with us? You know, any encouragement for all our viewers or maybe introduce a bit about your podcast and, and how we can how we can catch you and how we can listen to your podcast as well. And just do a quick wrap up. And, and we'll have the links below to his podcast. Yeah. And also our sure. YouTube video links as well. It's all going to be below. All right. All Good. right. Great. Um, I think, yeah, I think as, as what Dr. Lim has said, I also believe in the same few things. Um, I, I do realize more and more these days that living moderately is important. So whether it's eating food, and I think there must be a balance, you know, whether it's exercise, whether it's eating correctly, sleeping correctly. Uh, I don't know, it's the age talking or is it because I'm a doctor? I don't know. But definitely I do agree on that point. So um, yeah, for all those who are interested, we do have our uh, podcast on Spotify as well. It's called uh, the Prescription Podcast. It's also an Apple uh, podcast as well. You can search, you can look at that. And um, I think you guys said you provide the links. And there's a wide array of topics. Hopefully we can put up even more for the benefits uh, of everyone. 
hopefully our information will be as accurate as possible and non-biased as previously discussed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Andrew, you got anything else to add? No, I'm good. This was a great discussion. I really appreciate you uh, coming on, Dr. Lee. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is definitely not the last episode we're going to be doing together because there are still many more topics that we can we can discuss and yeah, talk about. Yeah, sure, man. And, and, and we haven't even really talk, talked about your, your journey as an educator. And I know yeah. that education is something that you're very passionate about as well. So definitely we're going to have a, a you come back for a, for a future episode and we're going to have more uh, topics to talk about. But meanwhile, thank you so much for spending your time. I know you're a busy guy. Surgeons are always very busy as you were talking about just now. <laughs> And uh, yeah. I really want to wish you all the best uh, in Taiwan. Uh, when are you leaving for Taiwan again? Uh, if all goes right, somewhere mid-March, perhaps. That's very soon already. And your family will be yeah. following you there as well. Hopefully, if Taiwan allows it. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So so really, uh, we'll, we'll be praying for you. Uh, keep, uh, you uh, be safe and uh, take care. But you have already had COVID, so you are super immune now with the boosters and all. So, yeah hopefully yeah so safe journey and really thank you for your time um so to all of our viewers and listeners out there if you're interested to follow dr ian and his partner co-host uh the links are all down below our youtube video links are also down below as well so do check us out on youtube if you're listening to this uh on spotify or any uh places that you get your podcast from uh thank you very much for staying with us until the end um really appreciate um your all your support all this while um, this has been the Dr. Preneur's podcast and uh, Dr. Lim together with my co-host, uh, Mr. Andrew Mastrin Donas. Uh, we'll see you in uh, two weeks. Thank Take you. Care. Thanks. See you. Bye. 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 This is the Dr. Preneur's podcast.